0: The Arthi and Sriram Show is a production of iHeartRadio and Arthi and Sriram. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is a true honor and a privilege. Uh, today, we are joined uh, for the very first time uh, by a member of Congress. We have Congressman Ro Khanna, uh, who serves as a representative from California's 17th Congressional District, uh, which uh, I looked at Wikipedia, and for folks in Silicon Valley, this is very much home. Um, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people listening to this, uh, you know, uh, we call this home. And uh, Congressman uh, uh resume is illustrious. Among other things, he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary uh, under President Obama uh, until 2011 and has served in Congress since uh, 2017. And uh, we have a lot of amazing things to talk about today, from tech, AI, Silicon Valley. But Congressman, thank you so, so much for coming on the show.
1: Rob, it's a great honor, uh, Arti. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've heard a lot about your show from many constituents that uh, my, my chief of staff says, what are they, downshifting? They usually get Elon Musk. They're having you on their show. So I, I'll try not to disappoint.
0: You know, when I was kind of doing uh, some of the homework and, you know, uh, researching you, uh, obviously very familiar with your work, but your family and your story was really interesting. So could you start with that? Because I think your story of your family and especially your ties to India and then your entry to politics, how did this all come about?
1: My parents uh, immigrated to the United States. My father came here, like so many people, for education uh, to the University of Michigan in the 1960s uh, after the Immigration Reform Act of 65, which was influenced by the Civil Rights Movement. If we didn't have Dr. King in the Civil Rights Movement, we would never have had the 1965 Immigration Act, which basically opens up immigration to people from India and Asia. Before that, immigration was highly restricted to non-European countries. And my mom came a little bit later in 1975, and I was born in Philadelphia in 1976, or my centenary. But the reason I mentioned the Civil Rights Movement, as many people know, is that was influenced by the Indian independence movement, uh, Gandhi's independence movement. And you had uh, both uh, the president of uh, one of the largest war HBCU, go and learn from Gandhi. And uh, you had uh, Reverend Lawson learn from Gandhi, bring those back to uh, the United States. And Dr. King had two books that he used to carry at all times, the Bible and the Gandhi reader. So it was direct influence. And my grandfather had a role uh, a small role, but a, a significant one from my perspective. He was in jail uh, two times for two years in the 1930s uh, when he was working uh, right before that with Lala Lajfot Rai, and then in the 1940s as part of Queen India's movement and uh, was part of the Indian independence movement for 15 years. And then actually became part of the first Indian parliament when uh, uh, that uh, took place representing Uh, A district in Punjab. And I would go to India as a kid, uh, and he would tell stories about uh, the Indian independence movement. And when he passed away, my grandmother told many stories. And that, of course, had a profound impact on me about the possibility of politics changing the destinies of millions of people.
0: That's such an interesting bit because uh, I think we obviously grew up in India yeah. and we grew up reading about this in our history books and, you know, such a deep part of uh, our upbringing. Um, what do you think folks listening to this could be here or maybe listening in India? What do you think they may not appreciate about that era in the 1940s Quit India Movement or leading up to independence in Indian independence in 1947? What were some of the stories that really stayed with you from your grandfather or your grandmother?
1: I met a lot of billionaires. I've met a lot of whiz tech kids. I've met a lot of venture capitalists. I find them not to hold a candle to the generation of my grandfather. Mm-hmm. I have so much admiration for that generation. My grandfather's achievements surpass anything that I could achieve. Those were people who dedicated their entire lives, risks to their entire lives to, for a cause that they care about. And I, my grandmother tells me how, when my grandfather was in jail for years, that she was raising the kids, they didn't know whether he was alive. And she was raising three four kids uh, all by herself. I think we need a greater humility to the achievements of that generation to the achievements of the civil rights generation. I also think it puts into perspective the challenges politically we face today, which are not nearly as daunting as some that previous generations uh, have faced.
0: Growing up in an immigrant household uh, um, and kind of you know being having strong ties to India as a child, now do you think that lends you a different perspective? And you know when you think about how to approach what you're doing in DC for your constituents, you know, how much do you think that has shaped you?
1: That certainly shapes me. I think uh, my grandfather's story and uh, the, the, the sense of uh, sacrifice that the that freedom fighters made in, in India gives me a greater awareness of the need to respect the dignity and aspirations of people around the world to be able to shape their destinies and to have a sense of justice in foreign policy and global policy. Uh, On a personal level, I'm sure the upbringing I had, uh, a sense of respecting the elderly, a sense of uh, uh, appreciating education, having a a, a duty to uh, things beyond yourself, shaped me. It doesn't mean I always live up to it, and I certainly err in many ways. Mm-hmm. But those things that uh, it gave me uh, values. But I've also imbued a lot of the great values of the United States: uh, a boldness, a willingness, counterintuitively to challenge uh, the the previous generation, to depart from the previous generation, to uh, seize opportunities, perhaps even before your time. So I'm a product of uh, both cultures in a way.
0: One of the many reasons, congressman that I find you fascinating is uh, not to make this too much about Indian culture, but when I see a lot of Indian immigrants, they expect their sons and daughters to be like, "Well, you're going to become an engineer, you're going to become a doctor, right?" Like, and there's kind of this path that you know people want you to be set on. And I am curious, right? What and obviously I'm guessing you're you're grandfather and his amazing story was maybe perhaps a part of it but what led you to choosing a life of like public service you know was there a catalytic moment where you're like well i know this is what i'm going to do and i'm not going to you know become yet another uh, engineer or doctor or lawyer or as the case may be
1: i'm sure look but the, the story of my grandfather where he could have gone and become a business owner and then in his clock, clock shop and then he goes and doesn't do that and goes into mm-hmm. in the the independence movement had my parents always feeling that public service was was a worthy goal, that there were ends to, to life uh, beyond just uh, success in traditional professions. Not to say that that success isn't very valuable, but that the role models of, of people who contribute to society were held up as, as valuable. When I was uh, 14 years old, I wrote an op-ed, a letter to the editor in the local, Bucks County paper about my foreign policy views on the first Gulf War. And the local paper published it saying, read this 14-year-old's lips to George. He was the first George Bush who was president at the time. And I thought maybe the president would read it. Of course, now I realize the president doesn't read even member of Congress's op-eds. Uh, but it was such an exhilarating feeling to be part of the conversation. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is still an extraordinary part of this country, that uh, you could be a young person listening today and come up with a, a video that goes viral and have more impact on the public conversation than I do in the halls of Congress. And I found it so exciting to be part of that conversation. I didn't think that I would run for politics, but I thought I wanted to be part of the, the game. I wanted to have an impact. Uh, and people always say, often say to me, how 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 do you do this job in Congress? How how tough is it? How do you put up with it? And I say, are you kidding me? There, are, this is a country of 330 million people. There are 535 of 330 million who get to help shape the direction of the greatest superpower invented in human history. That is an awesome awesome responsibility. It's an incredible honor, and I just feel privileged to be able to do it every day.
0: Give me my voice. It's just not cooperating. Oh, to that's me. totally fine. If politicians, you have that issue all the time. So, I... oh man, uh, I, I'm quite happy because it means I can say anything I want, and she can't respond. So you know, I'm not. Don't before. Sure. Don't abuse it. You'll regret it. You'll regret it. <laughs> I
1: was going to ask, you know, for somebody outside the the world of politics and public service, what to us would be oh, that's super surprising, or this is not, you know, for you being inside, what would you look at and be like, these people have no idea how it is like to be me to do what I do. What are the things that would you be like, these are, these are what is surprising for the life that you lead today? How hard it is to bring change. How hard it is mm-hmm. to move policy in a different direction. And you keep thinking, okay, you'll get a little bit more senior, you'll get a little bit stronger, I'll get elected to Congress, I'll get elected to Senate, I'll get elected to President, then I'll take these, and you realize change is just art. And then what really brings change, ultimately, yeah, title matters and power matters, I'm not diminishing it, but it, it's the ability to capture the public imagination, to mobilize people, and you could probably do that from vantage points, both in public office or outside public office. But what has made but what, what, what my biggest learning has been over seven years is just how many things you have to know and have to fall into place to move uh, policy.
0: I'm curious when uh, you know, you first got elected to the House. Right? what was that feeling like? You know, obviously it's something you'd worked to for a while, uh, grinding process. What is it feeling like? And what was it like for the first few months for a year? And the reason I ask is like, like Arti said a lot of people listening to this, their mental model of how government works comes from house of cards or watching <laughs> West wing, right? Like, uh, and, I heard house like of Cards was canceled. I, I, I once the house of cards, I said, Count Spacey has been canceled. But I, uh, <laughs> well, I think the first few seasons are okay. I think there's only the later seasons. I, I am curious to so when what, walk us through that, right? You show up at the hill you know, uh, freshman congressman, what was that moment and experience like and what was it first few months and a year like?
1: Winning for Congress was an exhilarating experience. I mean, I to, to go from a son of immigrants, parents who were middle class, my father a chemical engineer, my mom a school teacher, where we could not get in a meeting with staffers, my own member of Congress, to then representing arguably the most economically consequential place in the world, as a United States Congressman, as, along with Roger Krishnamurti, the first Indian American of Hindu faith to ever have been elected. Inspiring story, not just for me personally, for my family, but for the people at, at, on election night. Uh, now, it was also the year that Donald Trump got elected. My brother says it's the year anyone could get elected to anything. But... Uh, that's what younger brothers do, uh, but he was a he was a great part of, of of the win. When you win, then there's this great feeling of uh, of hope. Of uh, there was a feeling of accomplishment, of a uh, path breaking, especially being Indian American and my grandfather's story. And then you get to Congress and you realize that you know you're on the lowest rung of the totem pole. You you know you you may matter a lot to your district, but they don't really. Uh, Care that much about a freshman member of college. This in the big picture of Washington D.C. And uh, it's uh, sort of like being a freshman in college. You've got to figure out uh, where all the buildings are, how to get the office running, uh, make sure that mm-hmm. uh, you're just learning the system. Uh, you have to figure out what you want to, to to major in or as it, your specialties, and you're you're all you're you're anxious because you got all these other people, and how are you going to make your part? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the first couple of years, you're just kind of trying to find your your place there. The advantage I had is everyone was fascinated by the place I represented, even back in 2016. In fact, I remember being in the Oval Office with Donald Trump. I disagreed with almost everything, going to impeach him twice. And he said, uh, you know, they said, President Trump, this is Ro Khanna. He's a Democrat from Silicon Valley. In Trump turned to me and said, "Well, I don't know why anyone would want to be in Congress, but if I had to be in Congress, I'd I represent Silicon Valley too. You got great district. So I, uh, it was a a place that people uh, were intrigued by, even if they had critiques of.
0: Uh I was talking to another uh, congressman recently, and he had a similar story. He said, "You win an election, you show up, and you know you're on top of the world because it has been a grueling process." You show up and you have an office which is far away from anything on the top floor. There's no furniture. And your constituents are like, well, you know, when's, when are we going to see progress? And you're just trying to figure out how to fit in. And there's such a, you know, it, how, how it takes time to people to figure it out. We came to the country in 2007. And so we saw, uh, you know, President Obama, you know, the speech, yes, we can, that whole era. And it seemed at the time that Silicon Valley and tech, was beloved. Um, it was seen as a force for change. And we can kind of tie in so many things here, right? Like the narratives around the Arab Spring, even though debatable how well the Arab Spring worked out. But Silicon Valley was generally seen as a force for good and for hope. I think it's safe to say that narrative has changed in many different complex ways on the last four years. So, and one of the reasons, you know, I find you very interesting is it sometimes can feel like tech and Silicon Valley is often under attack from folks in DC. How do you think about if you had to sum up Silicon Valley's position with uh, folks in government, right? Like, how would you sum up that relationship today, we're sitting here in like June 2023?
1: Well, there was probably an over-deification of Silicon Valley in the early 2000s, a sense that technology optimism in and of itself could lead to the moral good, but technology can help provide opportunity, but it is not a substitute for values. And the pendulum is swung in my view too much the other way now, where there is an insufficient recognition of the policy good that technology does on climate, on economic job creation, on healthcare innovation. We need a balanced view of the valley, which is to say that we have to harness this technology for tackling society's biggest problems but we need two aspects to it. One, we need more equity in the participation in technology. It cannot be that all of the wealth generation and opportunities are concentrated in Silicon Valley, Austin, Seattle, New York, and uh, with a certain uh, group of folks. We need to make sure that across the country people have the opportunities to pursue uh, modern jobs, modern technology opportunities, and that It cuts across geographic barriers, racial barriers, gender barriers, and who's going to shape uh, the architecture of the digital economy. And second, we need thoughtful guardrails. The reality is that social media has done a lot of good. I'm glad that Walter Cronkite isn't the only one who gives us the news. I'm glad that Mm. there are a lot of people in this country today who will have a much bigger impact on the public debate than I will, even though I'm a member of Congress, because they'll say something more clever, more thoughtful, more ingenious on social media. But social media has also had devastating impacts on teenagers who are getting addicted and uh, leading to suicide and depression. Uh, It's had devastating impacts in terms of uh, spawning hate or propaganda. So we need to confront those issues and think through them thoughtfully, just like we did with the printing press. I mean, the printing press caused massive wars for decades after mm-hmm. it was invented. And it was not technology that solved that. It was the creation of liberal democratic institutions. It took a 100 years. And now we think, okay, the printing press is a great thing. And so we have to have that same uh, rigor of thinking what digital policy and forums look like so that we can shape this technology in a way that is constructive.
0: Why do you think that pendulum shift happened? And one of the reasons I think about this is uh, last year, you know, we saw, for example, uh, people in the administration in Miami, for example, right, say, "Hey, you know, if you're building tech startups, come over here." And sometimes, you know, living in San Francisco, and obviously, you know, the city of San Francisco is not exactly you know something you work on, but kind of just part of Silicon Valley. Sometimes it can feel like. The administrations here take tech for granted, or maybe you know Silicon Valley is, or, or what tech brings is maybe more tolerated than desired. And I totally kind of get where you're coming from in terms of multiple complex issues. And, and it seems to be more prevalent on the extremely progressive left side, you know, if I have to kind of figure out like where this is going on. Why do you think that pendulum shift happened? Because 10 years ago, that polarity would have probably been on the other side.
1: Well, first, I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the most progressive places in uh, the country, the Bay Area also happens to be the hotbed for technology innovation and will continue to dwarf Miami. I mean, well, it, just Apple, Google, NVIDIA, Intel, I mean, Miami, i a single big massive corporate company, and then all the AI research is being, taking place here. Uh, but why is that? I think one well, is because of the, the, the the culture that embraces immigrants and welcomes immigrants and says we're going to fund them uh, regardless uh, of background just based on their their talent and their drive. And it is a culture that says we're going to fund academic universities and we're going to value higher education and we're going to value education in this country and uh, a place which respects people regardless of their uh, gender or sexuality, uh, and that I think is a place that draws people as a magnet for for talent. So there's a lot about progressive values that 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 are good. I think what has happened is the income inequality of this country has been so stark, and technology, for multiple reasons, grew the line share of a lot of that wealth, and so it becomes an easy target to say, well, what what has happened to the 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 rest of the working class what has happened to the rest of the country and how are we going to make sure that you don't have gentrification of working class families how are we going to make sure that people who have done really well are paying an appropriate amount of tax uh to to ensure that those who have been left out uh can have a a quality quality of life and so the tech community became identified with uh the winners in a gilded age now, some of that uh, was because of their innovation, but the reality is uh, they still were seen as doing really, really well at a time where uh, the working class and a lot of other parts of the country were not. And I, I think that really triggered some of the backlash. And then there were other things as well in terms of the excesses of social media and, uh, and, and, and false information. Uh, but at the core of it, I think, is a, a concern with the
0: uh, disparity Which kind of one of the topics I really wanted to get to was a lot of people listening to this work in tech. You know, there are PMs at Google, you know, engineers at Stripe, you know, um, all over the US, a lot here in Silicon Valley. Um, And it's very possible, by the way, this video, this interview, it's probably the first time they've heard from, you know, a local representative, local congressman. What message would you have for them? Um, Because I think one of the, you know, and I think everyone kind of sees, for example, they see the hearings, you know, over the years, be it from the social media CEOs or more recently on the AI, like they see these things kind of play out uh, uh, in DC. How do they engage, right? What does engagement mean? What does having a conversation mean? And like, what thoughts would you have for the median Silicon Valley, you know, worker listening to this? Well,
1: the first thing, which I think tech is, Changing is is I would say humility. Uh, there was a moment I think where tech came off as uh, we have all the answers Atticant. in the world, and uh, I would never say that about politicians. I politicians know that we're at the bottom of how we're perceived in society. But you know, the the, the, the people I think uh, the, the the true social agents of people Gandhi, King. I mean, these are these are the people who I put at the highest levels of the pedestal of social change. Tech. Is doing extraordinary things, but there has to be a humility to say, "Look, we have to be part of a body politics. We have to be part of a country's uh, dynamics." That Silicon Valley is an important chapter of America, but it is not the story of America. There are people who have died for this country uh, in wars. There are people who have built uh, the, the railroads and built the uh, the steel. There are folks who have. Uh, to, to, to help African-Americans get the right to vote, and just a sense of, 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 of humility and willingness to uh, be part of the larger project. And that, I think, is changing. There, there is, a, I, I notice, more humility than a sense of saying, okay, uh, how, how can we make sure that what we're doing is helping the common good? How can we make sure that it's not just enriching my company, not just enriching my area, but it's actually moving the country forward, moving opportunity for other parts of the country, because that's ultimately gonna be good for tech. If more people feel bought into to what's happening with technology, uh, that's a good thing uh, for technology. So I would take that attitude. And then I would say on a, a positive says, the country needs technologists. I mean, I, someone asked me who's regulating AI, I said, three entities are regulating AI. They said, which agencies? I said, Microsoft, Google, and OpenAI. And they come for photo ops with like the vice president and then they go back and there are 15 people at these companies that basically determine all the regulations. You think Washington technologists know what's going on? Give me a break. And we need the technologists to be part of government so that they can help us with that regulation. The values need to come from the people, but we need the actual technologists to understand uh, the implementation of that. So there is a huge, uh, the nation needs, actually, a lot of folks who are probably listening to this podcast to step up, raise their hand and say, I want to serve. I want to get involved in in some way. Uh, How can they get involved? Well, they can start to show up to town halls for their members of Congress. They can meet with members of Congress. They'll find members of Congress are actually much more accessible than they may think uh they can participate in conversations with their state legislatures uh they can write policy papers on particular issues that they they care about they can begin to get involved in supporting candidates that they may like at a local level or a federal level i think there's a huge opportunity for political engagement and for those who don't care about politics what i would say is these next 10 years politics is going to care about them i mean they they're like it or not, uh, going to live with the regulations we we draft on AI and technology or the lack of regulations. And they're going to live with a lot of these policies. So they might as well try to have some impact.
0: As I've started to spend more time on the policy front and you know, meeting people like you and your peers, it has been amazing to me how few folks from Silicon Valley actually engage, actually even fly out to DC or actually even meet people. And in the absence of that, you know, you may not like like what happens if you're not engaging. You know, the folks who are actually working on the technology, the engineers, if they're not engaging. Um, you mentioned something which is kind of, you know, top of everyone's mind. You mentioned AI and regulation. And I'm curious to get your sense of just what do you think the right questions or the right answers are? Part of that is, you know, we obviously saw Sam Altman's and, uh, you know, kind of the the recent, you know, uh, hearings that happened, and it's kind of been a broader topic, not just in the U.S. but in the EU and lots of parts of the world. And for me, and I think for some others, one of the slightly frustrating things has been, like, we seem to be talking a lot about the risk and dangers of AI, and maybe, and this may be my bias, not as much about all. The value, the applications, the advancements in healthcare and bio, in all sorts of things that AI can unlock. And A would you even agree with that. And you know, B, I'm just kind of curious to get to your sense of the state of the union when it comes to AI and regulation too.
1: The way I see AI is that it allows for fast computing and at scale of the completion of probab- probability. It's sort of an auto or pattern detector. A great speed and scale. So it can do things like uh, figuring out uh, how to map the human genome very quickly. Uh, It can make sure that the radiologists are being able to detect potential disease with great accuracy. By the way, Rick, we've hired more radiologists in this country since the advent of better and more automated technology, not less. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to displace human judgment, but it can do a lot of computing faster and better. Uh, and, And that's a big advantage. It can make coding better by taking a lot of the drudgery away and automating that part and allowing for the creativity. But I don't believe that it is anywhere close to General intelligence, you know, my experience of ChatGPT has been uh, rather uh, insufficient. I was once with uh, Jonathan Jackson on Martin Luther King Day, and, and, and Jackson says to me, "Yeah, hey bro, you're, you're in though." I said, "Yeah." He said, Do "You know, David Thoreau influenced Gandhi on the civil disobedience." I said, "Yeah, I knew that." Of course, everyone knows that. And he said, uh, "Yeah, but did you know that Thoreau read the Gita?" I said, no, I didn't know that Thoreau read the Gita. He said, I'm teaching you about your own culture. Thoreau read the Gita. Look it up. And that's how he got the influence for civil disobedience. So I went to Sam Alba, was in my office that day, and uh, I, I said, uh, okay, let me ask ChatGPT. How did Thoreau's uh, reading of the Gita influence his theory of civil disobedience, and how did that shape Gandhi's uh, opinion on civil disobedience? And I got a perfectly correlated essay that said, Thoreau read the Gita. Gandhi read the Gita. They were both influenced by the Gita, which would have gotten probably a B in 10th grade, but was a, uh, an embarrassment for someone to give any speech in the, in the United States Congress. The idea that these things are going to be able to synthesize, think, ask the right questions, uh, be creative, draw analytical frameworks, have wisdom, have judgment, have uh, an understanding of the humanities, I think is far off. And that is because, uh, you know, the complexity of the human mind is tremendous. I mean, Immanuel Kant wrote the reason about all the types of modality that there are. It's not just pattern detection. And so I think partly because we've so hyped AI is replacing human thought, uh, which I don't think it will. Uh, I'm in the Trump's camp on that. Uh, it has created this unnecessary fear. And if we just said, look, this is a supercomputing power that's going to allow people to do concrete tasks and help make advancements in medicine help make advancements in data processing,
0: I I think people would understand it better. That's really hard to hear because I think, you know, that's how we and a lot of our friends think about it, which is it's just one of the greatest technological advances perhaps, but far away from AGI, and there's just so much to unlock, uh, um, and, and so much economic value, opportunities to unlock. So I guess the question for you then is: What do you think should be the right perspective and methodology to handle regulation of AI, or should we just back off and say, you know, for example, just like in the early days of the internet, if you think about it, there is an alternative timeline where the U.S. regulates the internet really heavily. And it's not the US, but some other country or some other part of the world, or maybe the innovation that we see in the internet doesn't actually happen. Um, And there is, I think there's a fear that we get too much regulation AI too soon, and we basically squander an amazing opportunity to have innovation happening in the US.
1: Well, I think that the president or Congress should put together a commission. I don't think this is something that Congress can do or the president can do. I don't mean just flying in for one day, a roundtable discussion, but put together the actual technology leaders in this space with some of the academics, balance it so it's not just people from the corporate world, and then ask that commission to make concrete recommendations. And there are trade-offs, right? I mean, on the one hand, you probably don't want AI just to be done by Microsoft, uh, uh, OpenAI, Google. On the other hand, if it's all open source, is it going to get in the wrong hands? And how do we have that balance of what needs to be open source, uh, what risks putting these things into the wrong hands overseas? How do we have sufficient human check or third-party audits without setting up audits and checks in every cumbersome way that you prevent new startups from entering? These are the types of questions that we need to ask. Uh, I I don't think it's just for Congress to do. We probably wanna put together a a committee, a group of people that can help guide us with some basic get kind of recommendations.
0: So I want to get to a topic, which I think it is kind of near and close to your heart, which is the idea of decentralizing tech and tying in local communities, right? Could you talk about that? Because I know this is something you spent a lot of time on, you've talked a lot about, and I think this also really ties into crypto, a lot of things that I've been interested in. So we'd love to kind of hear more about your thoughts on that.
1: Well, we made a big mistake in this country, globalization. We... Um, Neglected small towns, we neglected factory towns that were just shut down and uh, jobs went offshore. We didn't do anything for places like Anderson, Indiana. I was just right about Canton, North Carolina. Paper mill shuts down, 4,400-person 4, town, 900 people working there. They're all going to lose their jobs. And for 30 years, 40 years in America, we just said, OK, go find your job. Go find a new job. They weren't going to become software engineers. We didn't do anything in these towns. And so I've said, we've got to bring back modern factories. That doesn't mean you're going to have the same paper mill as you had in the 1950s or 1960s. But now we need corrugated paper for the Amazon boxes. We need paper bags for recycling paper. We can make the modern factories. And by the way, they're going to be clean. They're not going to be bra- breaking work. They're going to require technology. Why are we massively investing in these places in creating new technology jobs that may not require a four-year degree in creating new uh, modern factories in having place-based economic development? And that is what the heart of my vision of new economic patriotism is, is, to redevelop America town by town, city by city. And by the way, when we do that, we're going to bring this country together because no matter how many speeches I give about immigration, people will see the benefits when a small town in the heartland is is being enriched economically because of the contributions of immigrants of the coast. And I, I just think that that's the type of initiative that can unify this country. I saw that firsthand with the Chips and Science Act, with Intel building factories in Columbus, Ohio, and the warm reception that deep red Republican areas had for uh, coastal liberal, coastal elites who were helping their kids get jobs.
0: A lot of our listeners are in India. They are in tech. And when we grew up uh, in, in India, the the dream was you know, often for the people you know, to get to the US, right? You know, you would have your relatives and your parents. You'd be like, well, someday you're going to go to the U.S. And, you know, every movie would portray that. Uh,
1: or it would be like a relative did that.
0: Yeah, yeah. There'd be it'd be like well this person in your family yeah. did this and if you're ever going to make a name for your solution do this. And By the way, these days it's like why aren't you CEO of a Fang company yet, right? That's what happens in Indian WhatsApp groups. You're yeah, like you know so uh, whenever there's a new one, I'm like dear God, I'm going to hear about it in all the family WhatsApp groups. A yeah. oh, leader so of
1: the country, that. right, uh, like Gauri
0: Whenever one of those people like uh, Sundar or Satya, whenever there's a new thing, I'm like okay, I need to mute my WhatsApp groups now because I'm going to be you know people are going to be like what what has not Menon ever done, but. Anyway, we got the sidetracked a bit, but that's the era we grew up, where everyone aspired to a job in Silicon Valley. You know, uh, I've actually family members who have done that. Um, it does feel like in the last few years, that tone has maybe shifted where, uh, you know, sometimes they're like, hey, one, obviously the Indian economy and, you know, the uh, in terms of tech and consumer product companies have grown um, really well, and that is amazing, uh, obviously for folks back home. But on the other hand, there's a question of like, is the U.S. still welcoming? to highly skilled uh, immigrants, right? These are people who have, you know, computer science degrees or spend a lot of time working. And it can sometimes be like that neither party, either Democrats or the Republicans, really seem to care about like getting these highly skilled folks over. So I'm curious how we think about that. And maybe, you know, if you are like a 30-year-old, really smart Indian engineer listening to this, why, would, why should you want to come to the U.S.?
1: Well, this is still, it might be the best place to be an entrepreneur to get capital funding for your ideas, to be able to take a risk and fail and, and, and have people still back you. It, it's an extraordinary place to live with uh, freedoms to, to to make it uh, a life of, of your choosing. It, but we've had a challenge with immigration in America. I, not just the high-skilled immigration, but just immigration in general enriches this country uh, by uh, creating jobs, by uh, building small businesses, by creating high-tech jobs. And uh, the there's a fear. And the fear is that the those jobs are not going to come to places that are left out of globalization. Mm-hmm. And there's a fear that the culture is changing too much, too fast. And I joke around. I said, people don't mind if folks play cricket in Fremont. They just want to make sure that baseball is still the national pastime. And how a society deals with the rate of change is always a challenge. But I believe that if we create economic opportunity and jobs in places in this country, across this country, that people then will be more open to embracing the value of immigrants. And if we also teach a sense of uh, patriotism, you see, when I was growing up, my parents talked about my rights here and there. But they talked a lot about more about my responsibilities. They said, you were born in America. Don't mess it up. It's like winning the lottery. Go work hard. Go make good grades. Go learn about this country. Go learn about this country's history. Go learn everything you can about America. And that's the story of most immigrants. And we have to have emphasized that sense of patriotism, the sense of wanting to give back to, to this nation that's that's given immigrants and their kids so much. And I think if we do that, we will have a better chance of having cohesion in America in a multiracial, multi society, and also more
0: embraced for more immigration. This actually a segue to, you know, something which is often like a sensitive subject for people, which is like we are, you know, the product of two different cultures. We grew up in India, you know, India will always be the place we come from. Uh, but this country, you know, is what we call home. It has given us so much, it's given us our careers. And, you know, when we became an American citizen, that was one of the you know the happiest, most emotional days of our life. And we don't take it for granted. But I think sometimes, you know, there is this kind of tension between is patriotism a four-letter word, right? Like in the sense of how do you both have a multicultural society which respects every community and their differences? And also, what does it mean to feel patriotic to the idea of America, you know, in any shape or form. Um, and sometimes it feels like if you are on the progressive left side, being patriotic is even to say that is challenging or problematic. Uh, so how, how do we think? Do you even agree with that? Or how do you how do you and if so, how do we fix that? Well, I grew up with a deep love of this country, and this country
1: has given me so many opportunities. And I believe patriotism means recognizing the heroes of America and the sacrifices that people have made. The fact that we had people who fought the war of independence, who fought the war uh, of, of, of uh, civil war, to free slaves, to, who marched in civil rights movements so that people could have equal rights. It means being honest about our history of years of slavery and years of Jim Crow at the overcoming of those uh, because of the hard work and values of so many Americans in a a recognition that ultimately uh, a lot of what we've been able to do is because of the country. about people who died for this country in World War II and World War I, uh, sacrificed during the Cold War. Uh, I believe that the that you can tell a story of America and at the same time demand that that story give equal voice to every person regardless of their background. Yeah. Uh, there's not an inconsistency with patriotism and inclusivity. It is a nationalism that I think can veer towards xenophobia uh, or exclusion or uh, keeping people out.
0: Patriotism uh, can be very inclusive. I, I love that. Uh- and it also means a lot to us especially as somebody who's you know we've kind of, like a lot of Im- like all immigrants we have chosen to make this place home so that means a lot to us okay so one last topic and this is something we ask all of our guests uh who come on um let us say you're looking back many many decades in the future on your time you know in Congress um, in your time basically you know serving the public uh and this may be many decades or maybe many centuries if we get like sentient AI and we're all uploaded into the cloud somewhere. What would make you go, okay, this was a job well done. What would you want your legacy to be?
1: Well, I, I'm, I'm too early in my career to worry about legacies. I, I would think it, mm-hmm. I hope I've done other things in, in my life. But uh, if uh, if I was going to say, what would I want my legacy to be for for public service? I, I, I would hope I would say that at a time that America was going through incredible change, economically and demographically, I helped do my part to make it a little more cohesive. And I did my part to make America that reflects people from all over the world uh, to be a leader that was sensitive to those stories
0: of people around the world in how we acted uh, in the community of nations. Uh, but I can't say anything better than that. So, Congressman, I, I would say, first of all, you know, you are the first uh, you know, member of Congress to ever show up on a show. It's been a real uh, honor. Uh, I
1: hope I won't ruin it for others and you'll have a second. Uh, uh, no, I, I think,
0: you know, I think you're going to, a lot of our listeners are going to be just genuinely surprised because uh, regardless of people's political beliefs, whether you're Democrat or Republican, um, Arty and me, a lot of folks, you know, our friends, people listen to the show, we believe in the positive power of technology uh, we believe in the positive power of, like you know, the companies that we work for, the ecosystem we are part of, and we understand there are complexities. But at the end of the day, we think net net, it is better to have you know uh, a bunch of people building amazing technology, and it pushes uh, the country, the human race forward. That's so right. That's uh, it, right. And it is so heartening to see you kind of echo that uh, and talk about that, because I think that's a voice we don't always have. And uh, also our Indian audience will definitely love, you know, your ties to, you know, you, you, India with uh, your grandfather. And obviously, you're also involved with, you know, in official capacity uh, uh, with US-India elections. But Congressman, it's been such an honor. You should come back sometime. Uh, this is a lot of fun.
1: i love to thank you for having me, aren't they? I hope your voice gets better. And uh Sri Ram, thank you. Thank you to both of you. You've got, you know, I was describing you both as that uh, it's not so much just your story as uh, Indian. you're you're the American dream. And that's the challenge right now in this country, that the American dream seems to be slipping away from folks. We've got to revitalize that, renew that, get people of all backgrounds, all geographies to believe in that. So your story of patriotism and the American dream is one that I
0: can, I believe, will touch People well beyond tech and beyond Indian American communities. Wow, thank you so so much. That that genuinely means a lot, um, Congressman. It's a true delight. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thank you. Thank you. The Arthi and Sriram Show is a production of iHeartRadio and Arthi and Sriram. For more podcasts, listen to the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.